You have to know Levinas in order to study Levinas, not French. It's, it's really its own language. It is its own language, but there is something amazing about Levinas French, and it is that Levinas, remember, I, we, we've gone through his biography, Levinas uh, came to France when he was 18 years old. So he was actually 18 years when he began studying seriously French. And his French is, is difficult, but also beautiful. It's, it's uh, one of the nicest philosophical French things. Uh, uh, Bergson was also very uh, with a great style. And it's amazing because um, it's very rare, rare to, um, to write in the language, to, to write uh, very. Uh, uh, to, to have a style of, of your own in a language which is not your mother and, and Divinas is one of those exceptions and uh, it's quite uh, a mystery uh, ok so I have a question yes um, so this is the third class coming and you guys have been I've really been struggling with what I'm trying to say. And I was wondering, do you think it would help if we learned the Talmud and how we interpret the Talmud? Would that give a better understanding perspective of what this philosophy is? Instead of trying to understand it in its own? And yeah. maybe like how he approaches it would help me understand better what he's trying to say. The, we, we try to do... To we try to get to his philosophy through his Talmudic uh, readings. So um, you you can with Levinas you can you can adopt two two paths. You can either jump into his philosophy and then open his Talmudic readings and see how they relate, or do the opposite: study his Talmudic readings and then jump to his philosophy and see how they relate. Okay. Now what we are doing is we 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 are studying his. Talmudic readings, and we we'll see at the end of this reading, uh, when we we'll get to the end, there is a part which is uh, which Levinas writes, which is, um, is purely his philosophy. Okay, but he himself built it in a way, in such a way that he first wanted to to, to he wanted to to make it grow out of the Talmud. So the, his philosophy was to make it grow out of the Talmud. So, um, so what you, your question was whether if you study first the Talmud? Yeah, if you think that's what we're doing? That's what we are actually doing. Okay. Today maybe it will become more uh, <laughs> obvious that we are studying his readings of the Talmud um, and, uh, and hopefully uh, things will become clear. That's what's difficult with studying something new. Everything is very uh, unclear in the start, and then more uh, elements um, come together, the more it, it becomes clear. And Levinas is very... Uh, we'll reflect upon this when we get, when we get uh, to the end of the Talmudic readings. But what he actually did, because his method of reading the Talmud is not of just giving a synthesis of the Talmud. He's trying to reread the Talmud without really um, uh, while staying, um, 
again, without giving a synthesis, without trying to reduce what the Talmud says to very strict thesis. He wants to, to leave the Talmud in his, um, in, in the life of, he wants to preserve the life of the Talmud, the breath of the Talmud. So, um, again, hopefully things will become clear, clear already today, and, uh, and um, if we get to the end of the Talmudic readings and still some things are not, not, not clear, then I bring more elements. Into the uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm not trying to, to to convince you. I know you're here. I'm just trying to encourage you. Levinas, I said it in the first session. I will repeat it today. Levinas is a difficult author. Levinas is a difficult author, and therefore um, we have to struggle a little bit. That's what we are doing. Yeah. And, uh, just to explain a little bit uh, why it's so difficult. Uh, his, ta- his Talmudic uh, stuff is maybe not, not the best example, but he's always, uh, in a way, responding to previous philosophers that um, you would have to get there very hard, and he's responding uh, almost always to these uh, sort of the two big ones are Heidegger, which is like impossible and terrible, <laughs> and Husserl, and uh, you know it would, it's even harder to understand them. And then, so he's responding, in a, in a, I think, in a way that's important to him to respond to them, uh, uh, sometimes a, with reference to their language almost. So that, uh, it's a whole, I mean, yeah, almost everyone is. I mean, the, if we were studying his philosophy, then uh, of course, uh, this is what you say is very correct. And that's why. By the way, we are not studying his philosophy <laughs> because because um, it's easier it's easier to to get uh, notions of Levinas' philosophy through his Talmudic readings. Of course, if you want really to get into the heart of his philosophical arguments, of his uh, debates with the history of philosophy, etc., you should we should open the big philosophical books, and there there is a constant. Uh, dialogue and uh, critique and, deba- and, and, and debate with uh, Husserl, Leidegger, and actually the whole uh, range of um, uh, Western philosophers. Because we are we're not in a philosophy class, but in Drisha, Talmudic uh, lesson, so Levinas is... Uh, because he, he has something to um, contribute also to the studying of the Talmud. Or at least, uh, and again, uh, Today we see this. Uh, we see how Levinas has an original reading of the Talmud, uh, both very traditional and also very of his own and very inspiring for anyone who wants to 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 make those texts live again, to to see what's 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 in there seriously. So let's let's jump uh, to the um, to the subject and just a little reminder. Last week we started or. Um, study of uh, the commentary and we um, looked into the first part of the Talmudic com- commentary dealing with this uh, anomaly in the um, biblical verse <coughs> the verse says Vayandu betartit hahar and they stood beneath the mountain beneath meaning in Hebrew under, literally under the mountain and Rabbi said, well, that's actually because the mountain was inverted on them like an inverted tub, and they were menaced. Either they accept the Torah, 
or here will be your bur- the place of your bur- burial. Here you will be buried. I will, I will have, um, um, bury you under the mountain, says God. And um, Levinas commented, what we are witnessing here is the passage from the passage from negative freedom. The Israelites are just have just been freed from the Egyptian uh, slavery. So we are testifying of the transition from negative freedom, the simple, the simple fact of being a slave, and then being loosed of my chains, being uh, freed from my chains. But there is another freedom, which Lignas calls freedom of responsibility, which is the freedom which the Torah should give us. And Ignace and this, this metaphor, will, this metaphor of the inverted mountain, Ignace comes and says, well, perhaps in order to transit from negative freedom to positive freedom, to the freedom of the law, to the freedom of responsibility, something else than freedom is needed. Something else than freedom is needed. And actually our question is, what is this something else? I'll quote from uh, the text we saw, if you want you can open on page 37, the text we saw, the teaching, it's on the bottom of the page, the teaching, uh, last paragraph, page 37, uh, the teaching which the Torah is cannot come to the human being as a result of a choice. That which must be received in order to make freedom of choice possible cannot have been chosen unless after the fact in the beginning was violent. And I repeat this sentence because this sentence is really a key sentence and that's, that's what we are facing at least um, at first sight, this is what we are facing when we, when we read the opinion of Rabbi Abdi Barhama saying the mount was set upside down on, on their head, menacing them of, of death. In the beginning was violence. Now, what I want to propose is to put here, instead of an exclamation mark, there is no punctuation in the text, it's just a dot, but it's read, in the beginning was violence, as an exclamation, with an exclamation mark. I would like to, in order to continue with our reading, to put here a question mark. In, was there violence in the beginning? That's how we would react to the opinion of Rabbin Barakhana. Is, is it really violence, what we are witnessing here? The, the mountain on the head of the Israelites, menacing them of, of, of death, is, is this really violence? In the beginning was violence? Question mark. Why question mark? Because all the effort of Levinas in this Talmudic reading will be to try to interpret this seemingly violent act as something completely different. As something completely different. 
And that's what the, the, the next sentences are uh, actually saying. But we may be dealing here, I'm, I'm just continuing the reading, but we may be dealing here with a consent other than one, the one given after inspection. I'm, I'm skipping uh, one line. Reason would rest either on violence or on, and this is what's important for us, a mode of consent that cannot be reduced to the alternative liberty violence and whose betrayal would be threatened by violence. Wouldn't revelation be precisely a reminder of this consent prior to freedom and non-freedom? I'll comment a little bit on those. In those phrases. Levinas, we, we, are, we are used to think in terms of liberty and constraint, liberty and violence, liberty and slavery. Either you are free or you are alienated, not free, in a state of You say a, a serviceman? You say this in English? Yes. Well, you don't say that in English. Don't say it. Slave. Well, enslaved. Being enslaved. That's how we, we think a lot, a lot of times. In those, with this dichotomy, either you are free or you are not free. And again, we return to the Talmudic passage. If I would have asked you, well, what's this about? It's about, you would say, it's about the Jews not being free to accept the Torah. That's what we said in the beginning. That's why we understood why Levinas said in the beginning was violence. But then Levinas asked and he says, maybe we shouldn't rush so fast. Maybe there is something else here. Maybe it is not the alternative between freedom and non-freedom, violence and freedom, but, and again, let's be attentive to Levinas' formulations, a mode of consent that cannot be reduced to the alternative liberty violence. Or, a reminder of this consent prior to freedom and non-freedom. Okay, it's very good. Now we are just trying to open a path. We still don't know what it is exactly, but we are saying maybe uh, violence and freedom are not the only two ways. So maybe there is and a mode of consent which is not reducible neither to violence nor to liberty. In our existences, again, there could be a way, there could be situation in, situations in which we adhere to something without this adherence being the fruit, the product of neither violence nor liberty. That's what Ignace suggests here. He just opens the path. Opens the path. What it will what it means exactly we'll see uh, further on first. So this reminds me of Levinas breaking up the polarity between knowledge and ignorance. Is this like yes. a, 
he, it seems like he plays with this is the typical Western polarity, okay. Very good. but this is not the Very only good. way to look at it. Very good. Very good. Exactly. So if you remember the, the first part of the, of the Semitic readings, of, the, of this Semitic reading, uh, Levinas put on the table naivety and knowledge, the temptation of temptation and this kind of naive consent, etc. And he writes, and he says, well, maybe this Semitic reading will help us to escape temptation of temptation without falling back into naivety. Here, what he is saying is, maybe we can escape freedom, like the, the, this, this, this primordiality of freedom, this idea, this Western idea that everything begins and ends with my freedom, maybe we can escape this idea without falling back into violence. And again, if it's not, the question is what is not clear? If it's not clear what it is exactly that is neither violence nor freedom, then it's okay. We still don't know at the point where we are in the text, we still don't know what it is. What is important to understand is that Ignaz is looking here for another way, for another, for for new way of envisaging the way we are dealing with choices, with uh, our relation to the world, and this is said through the acceptance or the reception of the Torah. Yes. Um, no, uh, just to, uh, I think help. In America, it's very unclear, the relationship between law and violence, but at the time, just to put it into context, uh, there was a... I mean, basically, without mentioning other philosophers' names, uh, law is always, according to other philosophers, uh, requires the threat of violence in order for populations to follow the law. So even though we don't, we want to think in America that that's not true, in Levinas' time certainly it was more widely accepted and in our culture it's harder for us to accept that law is, uh, requires violence. It's at the point of a gun that we are able to have a society we think that has law and now we're saying if Levinas offers something it's a way out of that uh, accepted Levinas is not speaking about law, he's speaking about the Torah. No, but freedom, I mean, uh, uh, freedom versus law. Freedom, in, in general, freedom versus law is a dichotomy because law is, uh, well, law requires violence and law is a limitation of our freedoms. That's another, maybe more modern, but uh, Western view that we accept in America. It's anarchy or it's law, and we accept law because anarchy is frightening, and law comes with violence, and that, all that is all. I mean, I think ex- not questionable to most people, and Levinas is questioning uh, the relationship. So what, what's the question? I don't have a question. Oh, I'm okay. trying to say that uh, in America it's especially hard to accept that violence and uh, freedom have any relationship at all. Levinas is not trying to link violence and freedom. Levinas is also... Uh, accepting the dichotomy between violence and freedom. He says it's not in this dichotomy, just he wants this alternative, liberty and violence, he wants to su- overcome, to surpass. Right. Okay. 
So let's let's continue our reading of the of, of the passage, uh, and let's jump uh, to page thirty-eight um, to the objection of Rav Acha Bar Yaakov. Rav Acha Bar Yaakov says, "This is that is a great warning concerning the Torah." That's the Hebrew phrasing. It's a very weird formulation, and let's read our Levinas to understand it. It's a common understanding. Great warning is the commentator's attempt to translate an obscure expression, the meaning of which would be, they claim, to be put on one's guard. We are indeed well warned. If the Torah is accepted under threat of death, we are not accountable in case of transgression. Now, in order to understand this, bear in mind that Rabbah Chabar Yaakov is not, is, did not read Levinas. Rabbah Chabar Yaakov has a very straightforward reading of the first um, uh, uh, interlocutor of, of, um, of Rabbah Okay, he, he understands that the Israelites are forced to receive the Torah. He says, well, if they are forced to receive the Torah, well, then they can always say, say that they didn't want it. That's the objection of Rabbi Chabarakov. So they actually are not really tied to this Torah. They are, if they were forced, well, they always can try to avoid, uh, avoid it. If the Torah is accepted under threat of death, we are not accountable in case of, trans- of transgression. Let us allow ourselves to be tempted then. Everything is a law. It's like the law. If you want, if you want to think in terms of, the, of violence and the law, well, I never signed for, I don't know, uh, uh, from constitution or for, for, for laws of the state or for uh, even the, the, even though in, in the states or in New York I don't know if it's in the states you don't care about the red light <laughs> everybody goes through the red light it's really dangerous but at least well it's not so dangerous because because people drive decently here but if you would mix the Israeli way of driving and the, and the American way of just but Nobody feels like really um, obliged to uh, follow the rules of uh, red light of circulation because it's imposed on me. I'm doing it because if I won't do it, I get a fine. Okay, then that's how we function. If if something if if, if something is imposed upon us, we don't we we are frightened to 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 be uh, punished, but we are not linked to it seriously. We haven't consented. We haven't consented, exactly. We haven't, okay. You haven't consented. We were forced. So we have accepted, but we, it was not an inner consent. It was not an, a true adherence. To accept without examining or because of violence, refusing to be tempted in this manner, isn't that giving oneself over to the infinite and irresistible temptations of irresponsibility? Okay? Because now I can do everything I want. Of course, I should be careful not to be caught by the police. But... The way I'm looking at things is, well, I'm not really bound, I'm not really tied to this, to those laws. 
If reason is to emerge from a choice made without reason, how is one to keep oneself from making unreasonable choices? So that's a good question. If, if, thing, if the Torah was imposed upon me, then why should I be... Why do I have to feel obliged to, to really adhere? I can always claim that I accepted it because of the trail of death, not because I was convinced, not because I wanted it. And now the, the Talmud tells us a trans-historical uh, story. I'm, I'm jumping to the Talmudic uh, passage on the bottom of the page, 38. Rabbi said, said, they nonetheless accepted it in the time of Achashverosh, for it is written in the scroll of Esther, the Jews acknowledged and accepted. Kimu vekiblu ayudim. They acknowledged what they accepted. I want to, to, stop, to, to stop for a moment here and to make with you a little exercise. Please take those texts. Um, this is from uh, the scroll of Esther. Rabba, just uh, in the meantime, just to, to comment this, this, this passage of the of the Gemara, Rabba here said, I have an answer to Rabba Acha. Uh, that, that's what it should be. The, what we are reading here is an answer to the objection of Rabba Acha, who said, well, if we receive it under con- constraint, under the threat of death, well, then we are not actually tied to it. Rabba says, well, actually, maybe you're right. In the time of the Israelites at Mount Sinai, they accepted it because they were threatened. But ten generations later, in the time of Esther and Achashverosh and Haman and Mordechai in Persia, well, there the Jews actually accepted wholeheartedly. There they actually adhered to uh, to the Torah. Let's just give take a look to uh, at the text at the uh, quotation um, that the, the Gemara uh, brings, and I want to read it and I, I'll ask you a question. I'll, I'll ask you what's weird with this saying of Rava. Okay, so just take from uh, let's say verse twenty. It's, it's the end of the of Megillat Esther, it's the end of the scroll of Esther, so everything is over. Uh, Haman threatened the Jewish people, Achalverosh uh, uh, was uh, convinced by Haman, uh, everything uh, um, um, got upside down, and finally the Jews were safe because Esther um, um, helped, helped the, the, the or convinced Chashverosh that Haman was a, uh, an evil guy. Okay, so at the end of the scroll we have actually um, some uh, verses relating um, what the, the, uh, what was uh, stipulated for the generations to come uh, in terms of the acts of memory uh, of this story. Mordechai recorded these events. 
and he sent dispatches to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Ahasuerus, near and far, charging them to observe the 14th and 15th day of Adar every year, the same days on which the Jews enjoyed, enjoyed relief from their foes, and the same months which had uh, been transformed from them from one of grief and mourning to one of festive joy. It had to be the day of the extermination of the Jews, and it became the day where Haman and his son, sons were hanged on the tree. They were, they were to observe them as days of feasting and merrymaking, and as an occasion for sending gifts to one another and presents to the poor. How it goes? Matanot Levionim ve. Okay, here it's. And the Jews accordingly assumed as an obligation that which they had begun to practice and which Mordechai prescribed for them. For Amal, son of Amata, the Agagite, the fool of all the Jews, had plotted to destroy the Jews and had cast poor, that is, the lot, with intent to crush and exterminate them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded with the promulgations. Of this decree, let the evil plot which he devised against the Jew, Jews recoil, recoil on his own head. It's a really a, a retelling of the story, a kind of uh, uh, synopsis of the, of, the, of the plot. So they impaled him and his sons, a man, on the stake. For that reason, these days were named Purim after Purim. Now, now comes the verse that interests us. Because this is the one that Rava is quoting in our Talmudic passage. In view then of all the instructions in the said letter, and of what they had experienced in that matter, and what had befallen them, the Jews undertook and irrevocably obliged themselves and their descendants, and all who might join them, to observe these two days in the manner prescribed and at the proper time each year. Okay. The Jews undertook and irrevocably obliged themselves. In Hebrew, Kimu Vikimlu Hayudim Alehem. Again, and if you take now the Talmudic passage, the Jews acknowledged and accepted. Okay, that's the Actually, the, the, there are differences in, transla- in the translation, but it's the same verse, uh, 9.27. So I ask you now, what's weird with Rabba's opinion, or with Rabba's argument, which he put with his... saying... Not a rhetorical question. Well, the chronology is there. Right? I mean, yeah. this is the moment of Sinai. This way. No, so that. no, that's that. Rabbi says, well, you know, it's true. For ten generations, Jews were. They could have uh, put this claim forth that they were actually uh, they accepted the Torah under constraint, but after. Esther, after the uh, after the, 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 the episode of Purim, 
they can't say it anymore because there they actually wholeheartedly and by their own initiative they accepted and uh, they uh, undertook and irrevocably obliged themselves and their descendants etc etc so so you're, you're right it's, it, it creates a weird history of, of the reception of the Torah with kind of ten generations of undecidedness but that's, that's not what's weird uh, textually speaking in the in the claim of Rava. It's still a circumstance of violence. It's, it's still a circumstance of violence. Wh- why? Okay, what do, what do you mean? I mean, they're, they're in a situation where their lives are being threatened. I mean, like, it's how many... Or they, they were just saved, so they're, they're very vulnerable. So I don't think it's an actual freedom to hold out or be accepted. It's kind of... There is a difference between them being vulnerable and uh, violent. But so you write that, and we we'll see in a moment that you write, and that's very interesting. That it's a it's a very violent story. Uh, the, the book of Esther is a book which tells the the, the desire of exterminating the Jewish people with a great uh, right. So, but the acceptance that we are speaking about here is completely you're right they are vulnerable they just they were just saved you can say that they are a little bit biased that they, they are thankful for God they, at the same time you know that in the book of Esther there is no mentioning of God God is absent from the book of Esther so but they, they recognize and but it's not under violence there's a difference between being grateful for something that has happened to me and then that, 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 that's really balanced, you know. If if somebody does something great for me, and I say, well, for all my life and to for the generations to come, I want to to, to testify for this the, the good that he gave us. That, that's that's seriously binding. It's, it's but the it's same. The same occurred by Sinai also because they had just gone out of Egypt and they they were stuck in this desert where they were also totally vulnerable to God. So in a way, it's similar in that sense. Maybe, but the the, um, the Talmudic interpretation of the verse says, well, they did it under constraint. They did it under under the threat of death. The threat of death. Here, there is no. Here, there was a threat, but it's not that either you uh, accept the Torah and then we save you for a man uh, from a man, or if you don't accept the Torah, you won't be saved. Uh, there was not such an. Uh, Alternative. Not, not as forward, but maybe in psychologically they felt like that. Like, obviously our only way to survive in this world is to accept Torah because look what just happened to us. Because? Because look what we just came through. We okay, so let's, I, I, I heard what you said. We see that it, it's, a good, it's a good way. Uh, but I want to first to try to pinpoint an anomaly. An anomaly. What you are speaking is a kind of, it's interesting that it's a story of violence. But maybe the cards are a little... Uh, are dist- distributed a little bit differently here. Somebody wants to tell me what's the anomaly. When I, when, once I tell you, you will say, "Oh, that's obvious." So it's not something very. Um, it's not. I'm not trying to fool you, to play you. Just read the verses. Read the verses, and think of what Rabbi says here. But please. Oh, do you want to intervene? It, it, he talks out 
a few words and says this is a reference to the Torah, but mm-hmm. it's not clear in this Pasuk mm-hmm. that what they're agreeing to is that. They're agreeing to Mordecai's, um, you know, how they're going to celebrate uh, these two days. Exactly. Two days. exactly. How do you take that and attribute it to Exactly. This verse is not about the Sinai. It, it's not that it's not about the Sinai. It's about something else. You can you can you can easily find in the Talmud places where they completely decontextualize verses. They take a verse in order to prove something. That's that's very common in the Talmud. But it's it's very strange. It it happens. But still, here is one of the most striking examples of the rabbis. Rabbi in our uh, for us taking a verse and not only decontextualizing it but completely uh, changing it as you say as you said the Jews undertook and you only to oblige themselves but what to observe these two days in the manner prescribed not true it's not a, they are not testifying of their adherence to the Torah. They are saying that they will accept and do the, and, and, and actually uh, um, uh, respect the two days of Purim for the generations to come. And Rabbi here, as if nothing happened, says, well, there is another verse in which proves that actually the Jews accepted and uh, acknowledged and accepted the, uh, the Torah. The subject of their acceptance and acknowledgement is not the Torah. Levinas, even though he doesn't put it this way, but in order to understand the next, the following under, uh, um, um, interpretation of Levinas, of Rabba, um, it's, it's interesting to to note this anomaly. Why is it interesting? Because, and this is how Levinas always reads the Talmud, because for Levinas, when a Talmudic rabbi brings a reference, quotes a verse in order to say something, it's never innocent. It's never just a way of, you know, quoting or just uh, of, 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 of uh, referring to a kind of higher authority or something like that. In order, uh, uh, the, the, the Talmud for Levinas, the, the rabbis of the Talmud, always have a very definite idea beyond their heads, which they doesn't feel the need to, ex- ex- expli- to, to, to explain, to explicitate completely. What is certain is that we have to interpret this argument of Rava. It calls for interpretation. Because if you don't if you if you if you don't interpret this thing, then you fall in the anomaly. You say, but what are you saying here? What what is Rabba actually saying here? You can say it's just a reference to to this verse, because this verse speaks about something completely different. It should be a reference to not only this verse, but the, the whole situation of Megillat Esther. And here comes your, 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 uh, your input. Let's, let's read now the, the Levinas reading of Rabbah, and you'll see how, for him, it's not a question of this verse alone, but it's the, the, in order to understand, in order to understand what is at stake here, in order to understand this 
situation in which the Israelites are under the mountain as if they are obliged to accept the Torah, we have to make a kind of zoom out to look in Megillat Esther and to understand again the alternative between Torah and violence. And the scroll of Esther gives us enacts in another way those two elements, violence and Torah. Let's now look uh, into Levinas' reading and um, see how he understands Rabbi's saying. Page 39, and uh, I'm going immediately to the second part. But to justify the Torah by choosing in the course of Jewish history the day after a dangerous adventure experienced because of unfaithfulness to this Torah is perhaps to insinuate that the link between the giving of the Torah and the threat of death has a meaning different from that of truth imposed through violence. So, we'll continue reading in, in, in a moment. Levinas says, well, you should now go back to the episode of the inverted mountain and read it, read it through the lens of Megillah Esther. Read the alternative between violence and non-violence, violence and freedom, or something which is neither violence nor freedom. Uh, it's Mount Sinai through this episode of Megillah Esther. And here how, is how he accounts about of, it, of this. The Torah itself is exposed to danger because being in, it, being in itself being in itself that, that's, a, that's a concept borrowed from Heidegger I won't get too much into it I'll give some explanation being in let's say the world in itself reality in itself reality as it is is nothing but violence and nothing can be more exposed to violence than the Torah which says no to it. Let's read in the end, because here we have a completely new picture of, of what's happening. Let's read it to you. The law, meaning the Torah, essentially dwells in the fragile human conscience which protects it badly and where it runs every risk. Those who accept this law, the Torah, also go from one danger to the next. The story of Haman, irritated by Mordechai, attests to this danger. But the irresistible weight of being can be shaken only by this incautious conscience. Being, reality as it is, receives a challenge from the Torah, which jeopardizes its pretension of keeping itself above or beyond good and evil. In challenging the absurd, that's the way it is, that's the way it is, claimed by the power of the powerful, Haman, Achashverosh, the man of the Torah transforms being into human history, a human history. Meaningful mov movements 
jolts the real. If you do not accept the Torah, you will not leave this place of desolation and death, this desert which leads to waste all the splendors of the earth. You will not be able to begin history to break the block of being stupidly sufficient unto itself, like a man drinking with King Achashverosh. You will not be able to exercise fatality, the coherence of determined events. Only the Torah, a seemingly utopian knowledge, assures men of a place. Purim is the role of that. Purim is faith. 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 Faith, thank you. I always mix up those two. Faith, thank you. <laughs> it's very important to not yeah, disturb yeah. yes. <laughs> yes. it's, it's interesting that in English, English faith and faith are very close semantically. So faith. 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 Without the yeah. Faith. Tragedy. Tragedy. Tragedy is about faith. The role of dies. Aman. Apu. Nafal Apu. Purim. Purim is about Seeing how the world would have gone the way, to, the path it would have taken if it would have been left to itself. What Ignaz here calls being. Being left to itself. You have a few different ways Ignaz puts it. The most, let's say, popular way is this quote. That's the way it is. When we say that's the way it is. World, the world has its course, goes its course. We, we look at uh, around ourselves, we see politics, we see how people behave, we see how the world is evolving or not evolving. So we say, well, that's the way the world goes. And we say it with a kind of um, fatal acceptance. We cannot do anything. In fact, if we have to be lucid, if we had to, for a moment, look at reality as it is, we would say, well, reality has its own course, and its course is violence. It's violence. It's the survival of the fittest, if to use the Darwinian way of putting it. It's the, it's the, the, the Machiavellian uh, way that politicians act. You think that they are doing something in order to save people? Well, actually, they are doing it because there is a lot of oil there and they want to benefit from, uh, from the money and the power they can get out of it. The world has its course. Haman, Achashverosh, Purim, and now we get to this, this violence. You are really right. There is a great violence in this, in this text. But it's the vi violence of being, violence of being doing its cause, violence of a world without God. And one could say violence related to a world without Torah. We still will have to explain why. But, here, but let's, let's assume for it. We always, Divinas is always uh, uh, show, um, yeah, discovering something and then he's covering it up again. But here Levinas says, well, maybe when Rabbah says, Rabbah, when Rabbah points to, to the verse in Esther, 
actually he invites us to open up the whole book of Esther and to see that in fact the alternative is not between for the Israelites, for the Jews under the Mount of Sinai, is not between the Torah or death, but they are facing reality and reality is violence. Again, the reality of the scroll of Esther. The reality of the scroll of Esther, which could be a good account of reality as it is. That's the alternative, if you want, of of Mordechai, when he decides not to 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 bow to bow, to bow and 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 worship the idol that was on the, uh, suspended on the neck of of Haman, pointing to the book of Esther, Levinas for Levinas, means not just finding a verse which would prove that eventually, after ten generations, the Jews accepted the Torah. No. It means actually opening up reality itself as the alternative between violence and Torah. The inevitability of fatality, of fate, and something which is opposing this, a force, a non-violent force, we can say, which is opposing the violent force of which reality is made. Being, Levinas says, receives a challenge from the Torah, which jeopardizes its pretension of keeping itself above or beyond good and evil. Because this reality of Violence, this reality as violence, is violence not because it does not adhere to the good or because it adheres to, the, to, to evil, but because it pretends to be beyond good and evil. It pretends to be neutral. It pretends to be non-ethical in the sense that tragedies are not ethical. If you take, let's say, the most the most uh, uh, popular, the most known, the most famous tragedy. Uh, how, do you, how do you pronounce it? Oedipus? Oh. Oedipus? What, 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 yeah. 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 what would you say? Yeah. Oedipus. But you had another tragedy. No, I thought you were saying Hamlet. Hamlet, no. I, ah. You know that Hamlet, uh, well, Hamlet is a variation of um, another, not a variation, but... Uh, anyhow, I, I meant Greek tragedy. Okay, if you take... Uh, Oedipus? Oedipus. 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 Okay. Nobody can blame Oedipus of killing his mother, uh, killing his father, and uh, and uh, um, what do you say, having sex with her mother, with his mother. Nobody can blame him because the world of fate is a world beyond good and evil. Oedipus didn't know it was his father, and he didn't know it was his mother. No, that, that's a story. He meets this guy, he, he marries his mother without knowing he, he, he is her son, and he kills his father without knowing that he is his father. Eventually, he will be punished for it. But everything happens in the kind of extra moral sphere. Everything happens in the sphere which is not really the sphere of morals, which is the sphere of faith, of gods, 
punishing men because things they did, never did, because things their forefathers eventually did, etc., etc. Tragedy, fate, the world as it is, as if nothing is accountable for nothing, beyond good and evil. Torah challenges this order of things. Torah challenges being as uh, that's the way it is reality. The power of the powerful. Put in this way, the mountain was put on their heads. The inverse bracket means not that there's the alternative between the Torah or being dead as an actual alternative, but they were actually put in face of, of reality, dead reality. Again, according to Levinas, reading Rava, according to Levinas, reading Rava, one should understand this, this very unsympathetic situation of the Jews being uh, threatened of death, not as a real threat, but actually as a metaphor which stands for the alternative between a being, a violent being, violent reality, and an order of, ex of human existence which is not subjected to violence, which challenges violence. Of course, in this world, a man is always the strongest, and Mordechai is always the weak because he doesn't oppose power to power he opposes something else to power the order of the ethical, let's say the order of goodness an adherence to the good which challenges this kind of neutral state of being doing its course of that's the way it is if you read it this way, Kafale Markigit becomes something far more understandable. At least, it's not about men having to choose, really. It's about inscribing yourself into two different ways of being. You can either live like a Hashverosh, a man drinking wine, kind of fatality, kind of world which is indifferent to every moral uh, event, to even... Uh, or you can oppose this. Opposing this meaning accepting the Torah. First, that's the first, let's say that's our first take. We have a still a long way to go. Don't, we are just trying, and that's, that's you ask about the Talmud and Levinas, that's how Levinas reads the Talmud. He, he does one step at a time. We, a lot of questions are still open. What does it mean that the Torah, for instance, opposes being? Still a question, an open question. And we see that yes, we'll have to deliver an answer for it. But at least seen from this perspective, the violence of, the, of Sinai, the supposed violence of Sinai, actually deals with something completely different of what we thought. It's not a menace on Israel, on the Israelites. It's actually reality as, as really menacing. It's something which can destroy humanity. That's why Levinas says there is no, 
there's no humanity in be in the story of Haman and uh, and uh, and This stupidity of Haman drinking with King Ahasuerus, kind of words, and that's that's very the the, this, the the drunkenness of tragedies. And here you can bring uh, uh, Shakespeare into the the, the, uh, the frame. Like as if there is, you are looking for one human being in all those tragedies. You are looking for so for one. You have marvelous aesthetical statements. You have amazing uh, views on uh, but humanity. Humanity lacks from tragedy for Levinas. Uh, to me, it's interesting that. Um, in the second paragraph of the Talmud, Achasveros is uh, it's in the time of Achasveros, uh, whatever, not in the time of Purim or Mordechai and Esther, but they mention the king there is interesting. Again, I didn't get to that for uh, the, the quote from from Miguelat Esther. Yeah, they, they mention in the time of Achasveros. They mention it in the time. Of, it's a bit after. No, no, he mentioned. He says. Uh, they nonetheless accepted it in the yes, time of yes, Ahasuerus. Yes, yes. Right. I mean, the, the time is Ahasuerus. Then Levinas mentions. I mean, it doesn't really make sense why he mentions Haman drinking with Ahasuerus because that's not really a theme. I mean, I think he's referring to the party of uh, inviting uh, the, the initial party. But right, then with the Mishteh, the all poem is about Mishteh, about right, drinking uh, wine. But the, specifically the Haman with Ahasuerus. And you have the two meetings of Haman and Ahasuerus. Yeah, that the power, mm-hmm. which is the king, mm-hmm. is maybe a little bit neutral, um, you know, different from God. But the, man, uh, the power in the world is neutral. It could be used for good or bad, but it's drinking with the evil Haman. That is what... Uh, just, to me, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. It doesn't need to be mentioned in the Talmud that uh, they could just say, in Megillah Asterix says this, but it says specifically in the time of Asterix, they accept it. And Levinas doesn't have to say that power. You know, we we get the point of power. Yeah, no, he, power he, power. he tries to he tries to to give a rich uh, account of uh, of the story of Megillah Esther. He tries to like, to put into these accounts kind of very strong images. And a man sitting and drinking wine with a chalosh is very powerful. Phenomenologically speaking, it's a very powerful uh, image. Mm-hmm. Like. What do you do when you drink wine with a chalosh? You're just drinking wine. Just like looking at reality going its own course. Getting drunk. This idea of getting drunk as ways of, you know, just merging into reality without actually being part of it, or being part of it without being able to, 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 to challenge it, that's... that's, that's I guess a very powerful way of speaking of what Levinas means. Uh, we can say, but uh, yes, but we at Purim we have uh, we have a positive commandment to to get drunk too. Okay, so that's that's another that's another issue. Being I guess we're getting drunk also with the Torah. Yeah. Okay. So that, that's yes. Yeah. I mean, but yeah. he, exactly. We should yeah we should take uh, the page in Masechet uh, Sanhedrin in uh, page seventy where. Uh, the, the, the Talmud says uh, that wine uh, can be either uh, uh, can mean either your death 
or can be the most sublime reward, Zakha. Uh, if, he, if he is able to drink, one who is able to drink, for him drinking is the highest elevation possible. For the one who does not is not able to drink, okay, is not worthy. Worthy, yeah, worthy of drinking. You're right. Worthy is a better word of drinking. For him, it means being deaf. Okay. Here, obviously, deafness means this other uh, alternative: being unworthy of drinking, being as if you are dead. Being as if you are dead means not making a difference. That's what you, that's what dead people do. They don't, of course, we can mourn them, we can remember them, but I mean, they don't, they are not actors in reality. Well, you can be dead while being alive. For Levinas, again, I'm adding a little bit to his description, Purim is a bear about Haman, Hashverosh, etc., being dead while being alive. Giving themselves up to faith. Giving themselves up to violence, to the, you know, it's like particles, you know, like nature. Nature is about collision of particles. The strongest particle can, you know, crush the, 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 the weakest particles, down one, whatever one. Being part of this is not, not is, is the easiest way, it's the most obvious way. Eventually, one could imagine that it's the only way, Irina says, reading Rava, says, well, the Torah is an alternative to this. That's how we should read Torah or death. In the beginning was violence, in the sense of, was there violence in the beginning? Meaning, maybe there is an alternative to violence. Yes? So, okay, this is what I understand. Yeah. So, by Shem holding the mountain over our heads, right, really... It was saying Torah is life, except life. That's what it, that's what it represented. It wasn't Torah or death. Like Torah is life, mm-hmm. and that by accepting Torah, accepting life. Like so, I'm studying Kohelis. So interesting. So um, up to the fourth chapter, and I talked about how uh, envies how he envies the dead versus yeah. the living, and then yeah. there's tons of important explanations. And the one I particularly like is the one that those who are sinning, they're really dead even though they're alive, and that those and that the righteous who are dead still live on in their good deeds. Yes. So it's life the, is yes. really about following the Torah, being righteous and good deeds, and being dead is about, you know, engaging in, you know, worldly pleasures, like, you know, drinking wine and you know, indulging without any real yes. meaningfulness to it. Could that be? Yes. So that's what I understood is going on here. It can be understood, but still we don't. Uh, we want to avoid. What we want to avoid is. Vinas wants to avoid is too too general way of um, uh, selling the Torah. Uh, I don't know if, if this is clear. What it means. Vinas. Um, doesn't want he could say, say yes to what you just stated, but I'll state it differently. Still, we have to say what does it mean that the Torah 
is meaningfulness. What does it mean that Torah is an alternative for death? Okay? You say, in Kohelet, the Tamitim, the Tovim, Minachayim, etc., etc., the death are better than the living one if they are not doing. And at the end, you have the verse of Widdin. Even that, it's true. He, he, wants to, he wants to capture something of this. That Torah here is uh, meaningfulness. That Torah here means something which exceeds significantly being in the world. That there is a way of experiencing life, what you call life, living, which is not the best kind of life, which is not the life of beasts, of animals. Be, uh, still you have to, to be able to say, well, but what is it in this life of the Torah which enables it to transcend, to exceed, to not be part of this being he describes here. So, to your question, yes, it's a good reference, but with the only uh, um, objection that li- life here should, we should understand what meaningful life means. What does it mean? So we understand that the meaningful life from here means not to be subject to the course of being which Haman and Achadorosh are uh, dictating. But that's still a negative way of putting it. Exercising fatality is living. The question will be, what is it positive? What is this meaning about positive? And we'll see, let's, let's try to, if, um, unless there are other questions about this passage, I want to, because uh, we're a little bit short on time, I want to jump immediately to the next, uh, to the next Talmudic uh, articulation. Um, on page 40. Mm-hmm. You see it, it's on the bottom of the page. Cheskiaset. It is written... From the heavens does this utter judgment, the earth filled and stood still. Cheskia brings a verse from the Psalms, which is a paradoxical verse because it says it goes the heavens, uh, both the earth filled and stood still. I'm jumping to page 41, and that's the question. If it was frightened, why did it stay calm? If it remained calm, why did it get frightened? Answer, first it was frightened and towards the end it became clear. So now we are, we are transposed from this a kind of intimate familial sphere of the Jewish people being menaced by Haman to a cosmic ambience. Okay. We spoke about Mordechai and Amman. The Talmud continues smoothly, without hesitation, as if it was the natural continuation of what was said. And now the Talmud speaks about 
creation, about cosmological order of things. The earth was first frightened and then it became calm. Simple question, how to read this verse? What, what, what is this verse about? I'm jumping to the, to the following uh, passage in the Talmud. And why did the earth become afraid? The answer is provided by the doctrine of Rishlakish. For Rishlakish taught, what does the verse in Genesis 1.31 mean? Evening came, then morning, it was the sixth day. The definite article is not necessary. The hey in Hebrew, the de, which is italicized in the English text, is not necessary. So why is it written the sixth day? Answer, God had established a covenant with the works of the beginning, with the real code to come forth. If Israel accepts the Torah, you will continue to exist. If not, it will bring you back to chaos. And let's read one more phrase in order to understand what the rabbis are talking about. The sixth day, Levinas adds, the sixth day of creation alludes to a definite day, the sixth day of the month of Sivan, the day of the giving of the Torah. First of all, I want to draw you something interesting here. Because the, 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 this, this Talmudic passage is actually opening up the story of the acceptance of the Torah to a future perspective and to a past perspective. If we take this tonight, we saw that in order to understand the Sinai, we need Purim. And now we see, and we study this uh, immediately, we see that we need, we need creation. Creation refers to Sinai. How does creation refer to Sinai? It is written by He. The sixth day. Now, the other days of creation are without a definite article. It says, Not Yom Hashini, but Yom Sheni. Not Yom Hashishi, but Yom Shishi. Only the sixth day, the last day of creation before Shabbat. Remember from the Kiddush of, of Shabbat, Yom HaShishi, Vayachor HaShamayim, Ba'aretz, Vechol Tzvam, Vechalevi, Vechol, etc., etc. So, the Talmud asks, well, what's this definite article? Now, a definite article, grammarly speaking, from the point of view of grammar, is always saying that it points at a definite day. When they say, the sixth day, sixth day, and I'm alluding to one particular sixth day. I'm saying this, the book, I mean, I mean this particular book. Yomashishi, what is the sixth day? It's the sixth day of Sivan. Shavuot, the day of the uh, celebration of the Torah. So, first we linked the scenario is for him, in order to explain that reality, 
the violent reality had an alternative. Now, we link the Sinai to creation in order to look at how this alternative is not only an alternative having to do with, let's say, humans, the Jews, but with the order itself of creation. Let's, let's see how Levinas uh, understands this, this passage. The mountain turned upside down like a tub above the Israelites. We still have to understand this. You understand that that's why we have to take a deep rest when we study Talmud and when we study Talmud with uh, Levinas even more because he's, only, he's always reflecting back on what uh, we've seen. So it's, it's, it's unfolding little by little. And here's another, another, another aspect of what this first <coughs> saying could mean. The saying about Kafale Malchigit, the inverse tub. The mountain turned upside down like a tub above the Israelites thus threatens the universe. Okay, because let's return to the to the to the passage step of the Gemara, Rishlakish says God had established a covenant with the works of the beginning. Masebereshit, with creation. If Israel accepts the Torah, you will continue to exist. If not, it will bring, bring you back to chaos. Is that was a statement to the world, not to the people? That was a statement that God addressed to, to the world at the sixth day of creation, saying, well, you know what? I'm creating the world. But creation depends upon the acceptance of Israel of the Torah. Okay, so what does chaos mean? Does chaos mean balance or chaos just means the world ceases? Ceases to exist. I'm bringing back the... It's a total chaos. Total chaos. Okay. Ah, the, the, the text itself. Machzirota um, le... Do you want to, want to know how the Talmudic... What's the Talmudic... Uh, yeah it's exactly those uh, terms, the terms of Tovavo. Chaos in, 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 uh, in the sense of what was before, uh, before creation. So that's even before violence, right? It's, it's before... I'm, I'm, I, I take back what I did. Right. I take back. So you can say, well, there were 20 or 30 generations that where the world existed um, conditionally, okay, because we have it's a suspense. The world was created and took took something like twenty generations from the creation to uh, to Sinai, ten generations from Adam to Abraham, ten generations from Abraham to Moses. So it's twenty generations. For twenty generations, 
the world was suspended. It was like a suspense. If the Israelites would not have accepted the Torah, God would have destroyed the world. Don't be frightened. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very... Talmudic texts are texts which are highly metaphorical. They want, they, they want to convey a message through images. So now the question is, what does this mean? What does it mean that it's not that the God, uh, that God established a covenant with the world from the beginning, that even if Israel accepts the Torah, uh, they will continue to exist, the world will continue to exist, and if not, it will bring us back to curse. What it means, basically, is that here the Talmud extends the meaning, the scope of the event of Sinai. The event of Sinai is not only is not is not only to do with the Israelites. It has to do with the universe, with the order of being itself, with the order of reality itself. God did not create without concerning himself with the meaning of creation, says Ibnaz. That's why at the beginning of creation he says, well, I'm creating the world, but don't think that being as such, that being the Hamanic way of being, let's use this, you understand what I mean? The, the way Haman exists in life, don't think that that's actually what being is about, what reality is about. Being has a meaning. Being has a meaning. The meaning of being, the meaning of creation, is to realize the Torah. Again, we still, uh, I promise you, will, Levinas is not a rabbi. For the, for the good and for the, for the bad. He's not a rabbi. He's not preaching. He wants to say something, not that rabbis are, not that preachings are not the truth, but Levinas is a philosopher, so he has to give an account of what he's saying. For the moment, he's just deferring the moment when he will actually explain exactly what it means that the Torah is the meaning of creation. But from this passage, we can, Levinas infers that the world has a meaning, and the meaning of the being is to realize the Torah. And then he, he adds one sentence, which maybe may a little bit explain what it means. The world is here so that the ethical order has the possibility of being fulfilled. So you see, Olivinas jumps here from a very confessional, let's say, confessionally correct uh, sentence, being as a meaning, the meaning of being is to realize the Torah, to, to a phrase, to a sentence which is let's say, which has more of a philosophical meaning in the sense that it's not about the Torah. The Torah here is a synonym of the ethical um, event or the, the ethical possibility. Okay, in a sense, the world is here so that the ethical order has the possibility of being fulfilled. Torah is synonym to the ethical order. And if you want Levinas philosophy, that's Levinas philosophy. That the ethical order is an order which 
transcends being, which is not the order of violence. And here in the text of the Talmud, Levinas links the ethical order to Torah. The Hamanic way of being is a way in which there is no good, there is no bad. Beyond good and evil, as another philosopher put it, the tra- tragedy, etc., etc. Levinas says, no, the Torah is about giving an orientation to being. Not living being in its absurd condition, but actually orientating being towards the good. That's the ethical order. We, we will try to understand this better, what it means to orientate being towards the good is, a, is one of the deepest Levinasian insights. But let's say... The, Yes. Sorry. Did you write this before or after you went to the concentration camp? After. After. Oh, when? That's uh, from uh, 1960 or 63 or something like this. So okay. it's, the act, I'm, I'm just reading till the end of the paragraph. And that will, we'll, um, that will be our last uh, passage for today. The act by which the Israelites accepted the Torah is the act which gives meaning to reality. To refuse the Torah is to bring back being to nothingness. One can now see how verse 9 of Psalm 76, the first one we read on page 14, which earlier seemed to undergo a forced reading, extends the meaning of this situation, of the situation we have examined above to the entirety of being. The unfortunate universe also has to accept its subordination to the ethical order. And Mount Sinai was for it the moment in which its to be or not to be was being decided. Hamlet is is, is um, uh, here. You know, Levinas said in a text of 1948, he said, sometimes I think that all the philosophy is just, it just, it is just commentating uh, Shakespeare. That all the philosophy is in Shakespeare. He said it's about philosophy, he didn't say about Talmud. About Talmud, he said, I'm convinced that in the 5th century after Jesus Christ, Everything was said. Everything was already said with the uh, finalization of the Talmud. Mm-hmm. So those are the two. Shakespeare is all what philosophy has to say, and Talmud is all what has to say. Okay, so the unfortunate universe also had to accept its subordination to the ethical order. And Mount Sinai was for it the moment in which it's to be or not to be was being decided. The refusal of the Israelites would have been the signal for the annihilation of the entire universe. How does being realize its being? How does being realize its being? Here we are really at the highest level of philosophical formulations of the meaning of being. How does being realize? What is the true nature of being? What is not the true nature of being? What is the intimate raison d'être, the intimate meaning of being? 
How does being realize its being? For Levinas, Mount Sinai is an answer to this question. The question of ontology, how does being realize its being? With the same answer in the description of the way Israel receives the Torah. This way consists, such is the thesis we are upholding, in overcoming the temptation of evil by avoiding the temptation of temptation. This is where we'll start next week. This is, in a sense, this is my thesis. In order to challenge me, in order for the Torah to be this meaning which is in the core of creation and without which creation has no consistency, that means that creation goes back to Torah in order to understand this, we have to understand how the Torah or the way Israel receives the Torah permits overcoming the temptation of evil by avoiding the temptation of temptation. And this will be, I hope, the last articulation of our study, uh, which we will um, see next week. Thank you. Thank you.